Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. My name is Chris Thompson, so I'm, I'm Managing Director of Situ. It's a company that I founded 15 years ago. Um, we are a purpose-led development business, so our purpose is about tackling the climate emergency, as it's become to, to be known in recent years. Um, and the, the, the significance and importance of that really is, is one of the big drivers throughout our business, because we realise how much of an impact the built environment and all of the uh, associated infrastructure that comes with it has on our cities and on our climate. So the climate emergency now is something that people are actually talking about. But yeah. take me back 15 years ago. Who were you and what were you before <laughs> you came to Situ? Well, um, before I started. Um, so I, I, was, uh, I was from a construction background, but I had a real interest in design. So I, I trained as a commercial manager um, with a big construction company, Balfabiti. Um, they sponsored me through university. And when I left, I became a quantity sphere project manager type role. I worked with lots of different developers in throughout the UK uh, in, a, in an individual capacity um, before realizing that I, uh, that was what I wanted to do myself. So um, I set up Situ, yeah, as I say, I was, I was 25. So I was, yeah, I was quite young to set up a development business. And at that time, right away, were you saying we are purpose-led, we're about tackling the climate emergency? We, we were, we certainly didn't use the climate emergency words, but we, we were very much about tackling climate change and sustainable buildings. So the first building that we ever did, we built out of um, polystyrene blocks. Um, it was a very low energy home, very simple, six apartments. Um, and then we went on from there to do a, a project called Greenhouse, which is 172 apartments. We did that and some office space and various other components that go into that building. So we started that in 2006. No, it was 2005, actually, put the bit in. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a, something we've been working on a long time. And how was that seen then? Was that seen? How has it changed, really, the perception of, you know, sustainable building and development from where you started to now? I think it's it's changed enormously, but most dramatically in the last 12 months. I think um, when, and it's changed from our own understanding of it as well, our understanding of what we need to do and what we can do and what we should be doing has really changed throughout that, that time period, but particularly from the sort of stakeholders that you need to engage with as part of the development process, it has in the last 12 months become, um, like I think with the declaration of climate emergencies that local authorities have had, it has become something that is viewed as important rather than something that someone says, oh yes, I realise that's important, but we've got all this other stuff we need to do, so uh, don't let it interfere with that. It's now, it's ranking um, equally amongst the other priorities we have to deliver. So what's your reaction to that? Are you delighted? You're like, we've been saying this for years and finally you're listening, or is it? <laughs> it's, it's hard to be delighted about such a big, <laughs> a big gigantic problem as, a, as the one we're facing in, with the climate. But I think it's good. It's reassuring to see the momentum that we have now in addressing the, 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 the emergency in, in the way that it needs to be addressed. And 
uh, I think when you look at the science and what we need to do, we need to do much more and faster and that'll always be the case. And it's that systemic change that we need to make to how we do things and what we build that um, uh, that needs to happen. We can quite often focus on a lot of the behavioural things. They also need to happen. We're in a sort of market economy where demand is going to drive changes in in our outputs but the systems change is really important so i think it's if anything it's going to start driving some of that systems change so where i you know kind of worked in in architectural journalism there was a huge emphasis on operational energy um and not such an emphasis on on materials but you're coming from a different spot you know you were kind of conscious of that construction and material um impact so how is that changing how is that thought process from the polystyrene to where we are right now, which you might want to describe as well? Um, yeah. How is your thought about that, that, that materi- the materials that we use and how we should build? So I think it, it's probably started about five or six years ago when we, we really sort of hit upon the potential of timber-framed homes and using timber with its embodied carbon as our primary material. So. We're sitting just outside our factory where we're, we're now using that as the as the primary means to make the majority of our building frames and envelopes. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that was probably the the tipping point for us as to where we stopped kind of looking at all these different materials in a conventional way and actually thought, well, how do we how do we address a number of overlapping themes? So one is about productivity and construction. We know all the statistics that we, productivity is is woefully low and has failed to increase over many decades, about 40% productivity in the house building industry, best case. So we've got that, that issue. <clears throat> we've got the embodied carbon in construction materials. Um, and then we've got quality issues as well that we have in construction and how can we how can we address that through changing how we build what we build? So I think the materials part was, you know, the, the, there's an opportunity to address all of these by re-engineering from first principles the type of the type of thing you're going to build, either what and the how you build it as well. And what about waste? Is that on the agenda as well? Yeah, well, construction waste, when you can control it and you can standardise certain um, components, then you start to really understand it and you can optimise your materials. So, uh, yes, it, it, it all dovetails into the same same part. And I'll, I'll show you in the factory shortly how we deal with, with waste. And part of it is about the design process and how we optimise heights and design things to fit standard material um, sizes. When you kind of started to look at um, timber and this idea of um, pre-manufacture, what were some of the barriers that you you hit, uh, into either uh, real ones or psychological ones in the industry? <laughs> Don't know how long you've got. There's plenty. <laughs> We're still finding them. Um, I, I think you know, it's something it's something so fundamental as moving from a developer where you outsource everything to a contractor to vertically integrating that whole design and manufacture process in-house the the single biggest barrier is about culture and skills and training because we've gone from an organization that had 10 people to an organization that's got 150 so that for, for us as a as a change that was that was huge um Going down a layer from that, there's numerous sort of technical challenges about approvals, about designs, about getting engineers and architects and 
uh, fire engineers. I mean, probably. Uh, yeah, insurance, yeah, warranty providers. Um, so there's a whole process to go through. Um, and I think just when we sort of got a straight edge on that, the um, the fire regulations changed post-Grenfell and um, non-combustible or combustible materials weren't permitted in external walls. So you then, you're back to re-engineering and a lot of testing and a lot of demonstrating and giving evidence to, to the right people. So yeah, it's full of hurdles, um, but we've we've, try to focus on the bigger picture that this is there's a there's a bigger prize which is about productivity and about quality um, of products so it's um it's certainly not for the faint-hearted the journey you've been on and i think sometimes think if you could line up all the things that you had to do before you started you'd probably think do i want to go down that road but uh, <laughs> we started so we are so in terms of the post um Grenfell uh, combustibility. What have you gone for to solve that? Well, it applies to buildings over 18 meters. So we've re-engineered most of our buildings so they're under 18 meters. And I think um, that's that's a fairly blunt response to that. But um, uh, until building regulations sort of uh, changes and adapts to different material types so it's not as binary as is this combustible or non-combustible it's looking at the whole thing as a system then i think that's all we could do really so do you find that they've taken maybe too blunt an approach and yeah i don't think it was intended to catch timber as a as a structural material but it 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 has caught that and i know there was a swift action required post grenfell and understandably so um but i think in time to come I, i expect that that will be, um, yeah, that'll be looked at and a, a kind of more holistic approach will be taken to make sure that the, the buildings, that they are safe. Um, but it, yeah, yeah. You I'm said you... <laughs> route of talking about fire, which is probably not my chosen specialist subject. But. Well, actually, I'm sure everyone who's listening would be interested. <laughs> so um, I, you talked about this kind of change needed in culture and in skills and in training. What, what did you do to try and 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 change that within situ as you're building this? How did, where did you look to kind of bring different cultures and skills into the organization? Um, I think it starts with sort of culture and the values of the business and the construction industry is used to working in in a certain way and they're, they're, by its very nature they're competitive tenders they're short-term projects they're people that are put together to with quite specific time and financial outcomes and it drives a certain type of behavior um, which is which tends to be every man for himself and the, you see that in particularly house building where there's an interface between all of the different trades and it's generally those interfaces between your plumber and your electrician or your joiner and your plasterer etc where those um, where you can get those those gaps and, and friction what we've tried to do here and this is very much work in progress is about is is removing those barriers and making the culture much more about the product rather than the process. So the the teams we have, once the the frames and floors are, are made in the factory, they get they get directed on site by a, one of our teams. We then have multi-skilled teams of electricians, plumbers, and joiners who go into a house and they complete that house working as a team, and then they come out. So it's it's very different culture because those previously t- traditionally. Um, different trades you might 
who might be used to having friction between them are put together as one team and they're measured about their quality and outputs that they produce. So that's quite a big cultural change from where we are. And to, to facilitate that, a lot of the management and leadership we've taken has been from manufacturing backgrounds. So our operations director is an automotive, um, ex-automotive guy from BMW. We have across our senior management team in the operations business, over 80% of them are from manufacturing rather than construction. And that was a conscious choice because you couldn't find the skills you needed in construction or were you trying to just cherry pick from other industries, different ideas and ways of working? It's, um, it's, I guess this is about culture and about being used to working with certain systems and in certain ways. And the people in construction, and I say this as someone who was very much trained to be able to handle a construction project, that those skills aren't the sort of thing that we are looking for. We're looking for how we can facilitate continuous improvement on a, on a quite a small micro level, taking a long-term approach. This isn't about focusing on the, the processes and um, a project-based approach. It's, it's a long-term we are producing a number of homes per month that is increasing each month. And, you know, we've got to get better at all of those components within there. But it is, it is much more about the, um, what did Team Sky call it? The, the uh, marginal gains. Marginal gains, thank you, yeah. The marginal gains that they, it's every, every second counts and it's... Um, it's micro improvements. The, it's the, yeah, micro improvements of many things that lead to excellence. And that's a, it's a different type of thinking to construction. So when, um, if we zoom out to kind of some of the sites that you're working on now and how this, this links up with, you know, kind of delivering places, um, can you tell me a little bit about projects you're working on? Yes, yeah, so we've got two projects. From the micro to the macro. So, micro to the macro. Um, so we've got two projects on site at the moment. We have um, Climate Innovation District in, in Leeds here which is um, part of the Leeds South Bank, which is a big regeneration site in Leeds. Um, we've got about 21 acres of development land where we're building around 800 homes. We've got a two-farm entry primary school, care home, commercial offices, leisure, and quite a lot of landscaping that knits all that together. Is it's... all of that to Passive House standard? So we build the frames to a passive house equivalent standard. We don't certify for passive house. So we don't, we don't actually, that's not, that's not the route we go down. Um, and the reason we don't do that is that we let the placemaking dictate what we're doing. So if we were to optimize everything for passive house standards, the orientations and the building forms would be slightly different that might not fit with the place. So what we do do is we, we, we model everything in passive house planning package, PHPP, which gives us really detailed information about the performance of the home um, and we make that information available to purchasers so that they can make informed choices. So some of these will perform um, on a, um, a heat load perspective um, where they need to meet for passive house, some of them won't. And so, yeah, people are making those choices. So, um... Again, you're talking about uh, Leeds South Bank. So what kind of a place is it that you're creating there? So I think the, the, the interesting thing about what we're trying to do is that it's, it, it's about creating a place. So if you take South Bank as a whole, I think it's 280 acres. 
and it's a former industrial space so there's not much grain to knit it into we're talking about a pretty cleared earth type regeneration policy um, lots of new build and there are some really interesting amenities that we uh, that we're looking to connect into one being that the the river air runs through the um the north of the south bank as its name might suggest um we we want to create a place where we can bring a different demographic to the city so there haven't been family housing in leeds city center for about 100 years so family bringing families into the city is part of that renaissance of of Leeds trying to create this more diverse and uh, culturally interesting place and that's that's really happening the so bring family houses back we've got to ch change the type of place that feels like so it is very much of a human scale things are generally three and four stories there are some buildings that are up to six but that's the that's the um, uh, that's, that's the, the flavor of what we're generally doing um, and then there's a big focus on walkability and navigability of the public space and the public realm. So it feels very safe and it feels very grounded. Um, so yeah, and then knitting those in with the river air. So where we've got an opportunity to face onto the river and make the most of that relationship, we're, we're trying to grab that, as you might expect. And is part of that around the, I mean, the walkability and um, is that around that, is that linked to your agenda as a company for a more climate responsible way of living as well yeah. as the buildings themselves yeah i think it has to be when you look at the macro level of carbon emissions as you know part of it's from buildings parts from transport and parts from energy systems so we've got we've got an obligation to deal with all three of those so uh and transport's probably the hardest because you lock in this infrastructure and it's there for a really long time and to challenge that status quo about the infrastructure that is is thought to be expected in a new development you've got to provide some sort of evidence base to say why you want an alternative way which is challenging <laughs> creating an evidence base for something that is relatively new so or, then the provocative question is is it family housing with no car parking or did you still have to put in some parking spots no we've still had to put in parking spaces we we as a general um percentage across the development we've got about 0.7 spaces per dwelling um, and that is we think um, probably slightly over what we would need in the market but these things are going to be changing hugely from the next over the next 20 years and whilst we think we we think that the the direction will be that the number of cars will reduce we don't really we can't say that completely for sure today so we've got to meet some of the market needs and um, have a plan to be adaptable in the future if we find we've got more car parking than we need. And then um, it's already a bit against the grain, as you said, this is family housing and actually with Leeds we associate, you know, PRS and one and two bedroom flats and that's who lives in the city centre and families move out. And so what, what was the decision in, in kind of taking that different? Was it kind of an opportunity to, to, to be different to everybody else as a point of market? differentiation or were you just spotting a, a, a gap and a need? Um, I think it's about creating um, th there's a bit of all of that in, in, in the answer I suppose but I th this is about creating a great great places and the we're not being too prescriptive about demographics or saying there's a real there's a great opportunity here we're going to exploit it it's really and then when you look at the the data about the demographics that that of people that are living at the development i think it is really mixed we have 
um, we have quite a lot of downsizers. Kids have left home and they're saying, well, actually, I'm going to move back into the city and enjoy the amenities of the city centre and um, a very uh, kind of, um, I guess, a, a much simpler existence to having a big Victorian suburban house that needs a lot of maintenance and work in the garden. So giving back a lot of time there's there's families there's couples so there's a whole there's a whole spectrum from you know as you say retired people all the way down to early 20s and part of that reflects the size and typology of the house so we are building everything from one bedroom apartments to four bedroom five bedroom houses so you do get that flavor and i think that's really healthy because we don't we're not meant to live in places that are only frequented and inhabited by people like of our same age as us and yet we particularly in the development industry it probably probably extends to a lot of different industries but we we do silo a lot so we say well this is where all our young people are going to live this is where our old people are going to live this is where you're going to shop this is where you're going to be educated this is where you're going to work it just the great places of the world don't tend to work like that they tend to be much more mixed and much more fluid in where people are living and working so we're trying to really get all of those great ingredients and create a great create a place that is is really livable and feels great essentially what's your approach to sustainability from a kind of landscape biodiversity that kind of is that something you're looking at now in terms of um there's been a bit of a shift towards i guess a sense that we have to do some rewilding within these new places and and deal with nature in a different way so i don't know what your approach is yeah. you said it was quite an empty site so presumably there wasn't a great deal of tree and shrub to work with necessarily <laughs> well interestingly that um when you look at uh, rewilding and the uh, biodiversity you tend to find that r rivers and verges are the places that are least least interfered with so you get really interesting pockets of biodiversity along a riverbank and what we found when we bought the site here although it's on the edge of Leeds city centre one of the first bits of wildlife I came across was an otter which took me entirely by surprise uh, I thought it was a dog <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah there's, there's, there's otters in 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 the river and um, kingfisher and you know you, you cormorants so you see you see lots of wildlife there that you, ne you wouldn't necessarily associate with the city center and so part of that was when we we start thinking about um okay there's a there's an existing river bank and it's in a it's in uh, it's an unstructured river bank it's quite a uh, it's just been doing what it's been doing for however long um, the first engineering solution was, well, we'll put a piled wall in here and that will retain the riverbank. We can then, we can gain back this piece of developable land and we can, uh, we can, we can, you know, you set a, an edge that is kind of, uh, certifiable if you like. And we, we, we resisted that and I'll show you when we go out there, but we've got a very soft edge to the, to the river, which meant we retained all the trees along the riverbank. Um, and we've stepped it up in tiers. So we've left the the first two lower tiers as natural as we can. The first one's entirely natural. The second one, we have um, uh, wildflower meadows. So that is, uh, and bees. And so that, that second tier is left to that. The third tier is much more structured. So we have um, a resident gardener that pl has planted formally the, the, the landscape in there. He does it in a way where one in five plants is edible. 
Um, and then the ground is all re-engineered, so we have a full subsystem across the whole site. So the water's all contained there and percolates away. And then the bit that would otherwise be roadway would typically be tarmac. We've engineered with a, a grid system and then have grassed that. So the grassed area is actually the road, <laughs> and then the structured planting sits around that and frames that particular area. So that's part of the climate innovation, I would think. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really integral. You've got to, we've got to find a way of how we can live with nature and we can both benefit from that. We, we crave that as humans. We need to see nature, we need to experience it. And I think it's, uh, it's, it, it can and should be a really positive thing. There's, a, there's also a, uh, an expectation that if you live in the countryside, and we're here in Leeds, that if you, if you move to the countryside, you will experience nature. But a lot of our countryside is very gardened. So you could move to the wilds of Yorkshire and what you might only see is a sheep. So um, if, we, if we really intensify and look after that wilded nature part of where we are, we will experience a lot more of it. We just need to look for it. I mean, that was my reaction quite funnily enough when I moved from Canada and I would take the train. I was like, there is no wilderness. People would be like, oh, it's the countryside. I was like, no, these are farms. Like, that's not really the same um, thing. But I think there is a perception that some of these fields are actually wild, where in actual fact they're, they're very heavily cultivated, obviously. Yeah. And it's just what we get to, uh, what we what we grow up expecting. That's our that's our expectation or our perception of what the countryside looks like. So that's that's what we accept it being. But we can do much better. And I think they can go hand in hand in glove with um, development as well. Well, and that's a a, a big question because I guess rewilding seems like the antithesis of development in a way. So finding that balance between making places and actually the environmental cost of making places it must be something that you guys talk about quite a lot. Yeah, I think we've got very used to needing to control nature. So rewilding is really just letting go of a little bit of that. So we, we do we do have a need to kind of exert our uh, yeah, our powers over nature by, by pruning things and just by reducing them to a probably of things that are of human scale that we can kind of relate to this these things so there, there's lots of opportunities that need to be at a huge scale it just needs to be able to provide corridors where wildlife can travel down them so that's why i mentioned about verges and um and river corridors because they they are generally the two bits of our countryside that someone doesn't own and plow or gray overgraze with a fairly uh, indiscriminate animal so you know with this project um you've got the lead south Brent climate innovation district you mentioned another one yeah, we've got a site in Sheffield called Little Kellum. So it's in a place called Kellum Island, which is a former industrial area just to the north of Sheffield city centre. Um, it's characterised, I guess, by probably two things. One is the historic buildings in Kellum, so quite in, in a different way to where we are here in Leeds. It has a lot of listed buildings and real characterful former metal trades buildings. And secondly, it's most noticeably, no, most noted, notable for its um, pubs. It has a really real ale trail in Callum Island that um, has got quite a reputation and brings quite a lot of people to Callum Island. So there's those two things that are um, exist, existing, um, uh, I guess, amenities in the city 
in that part. Um, again, it's of a very human scale. The buildings are all three and four stories, and it's in a walkable distance to Sheffield City Centre. So it's got its own identity and yet feels connected by foot to the city. Um, so yeah, we've got a, our development there. We're building 250 homes. Um, about we've got about 50,000 square foot of office. Um, a number of different leisure and retail opportunities as well. So we are about 60% through that development now. And is it again for sale? It's all for sale, yeah. Yeah. And how would it how would you describe it? Is it as is it very different to to what you're doing in Leeds? Um, or is it still kind of family oriented with a mix of Yeah, I think in terms of the mix it's quite similar. So we have a, a roughly fifty fifty percent of houses and apartments and um they uh, and again in principal terms we've taken cars out of the landscape so cars there are car parking available but it's not as part of the streets and um, trying to in I guess from a development viewpoint it's medium density so it's we've got to make two things work we've got to create the great place but we've also got to make the land economics work so we've got to be able to get a density that that makes the the appraisal stack up um, which so yeah it's a medium density type of development but a big emphasis on that making the most out of that public realm i wanted to ask about um what your challenges are as a developer going forward you know you've kind of got these two that are partway through or nearing halfway through completion um when you're looking ahead you know what what are the things that are keeping you up at night i guess right now or that you'd like to see changed you could start with maybe what's your next step as a developer? Yeah, okay. So I think our our next step is about um, taking what we're doing. And I, and I know um, I always simplify things into what we're building and how we're building it. So kind of my oversimplification. But the, I think the what we're building will be a, they'll both be continuous evolutions of, of of, of improvements but the how we're building uh how we're building our product has gone on a huge journey we've now got to the point where we can produce our product um at a, at a higher quality and at a time period and at a cost that is better than we could procure it in the market so that was our first kind of benchmark so we've, we've got there how long did it take to get there uh about five years um, this, the second thing we've got to do, though, is to is to take that model and take it to a world class level. Now, that's easy to say <laughs> and quite challenging to do. And the there's a lot of questions we don't yet know the answers to. So there's people doing this on at a at a um, at a really big scale and getting efficiencies and productivity levels that possibly come with scale, possibly come with time and expertise and skills and culture, um, and really knowing what your where your sweet spot is and where it isn't, and what things you should do and what things you shouldn't do. Um, we've got to go through that learning curve yet in order to get from where we are now to being world class. And if we just explain it for people who maybe aren't familiar, when you're talking about what you're doing, it's kind of that that modular that that modular construction that piece where you're creating kind of a product that can be delivered in various ways yeah so we 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 create in the factory 
finished walls and uh, floor cassettes. So we then put them into a, we, we connect those into a building on site. And then we have a team that goes in and puts the waterproofing and the, the, the finishing materials on the outside. So, and then we have a team that, as I mentioned earlier, just they go in and do the fit out as a, as a multi-skilled team. There's, um, and that floor cassette in those walls can be changed, presumably based on within a certain number of parameters. They don't have to be identical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's not really um, any particular constraints that would prevent us from doing something apart from the 18 meter uh, building regulation constraint. But yeah, we've got a lot of architectural freedom. So if we wanted something to respond in a certain way to a, an opportunity on the site, we could we could make that happen. And if you look at when you're saying, I'm going to compare this to, you know, a kind of world-class other, our competitors elsewhere in Europe, et cetera, what are they doing that you, you're envious of or hoping to get to? Well, I think it's not that we're uh, hoping to get to. It's just finding that sweet spot between scale and impact. So our driver has really been about impact. So we want to, we want to create great places and it's not really about becoming the biggest or having great volumes. But there is a, a correlation between volume and, and efficiency. There's an economies of scale. And it's where we can sit and how we can make sure that our we have enough scale so that we get those enough of those efficiencies, but that we don't turn into a machine where we just need to feed that machine irrespective of the what, the type of place that we want to build. So we need to make sure that we keep that as our as our core, but but that we understand the productivity equation. Where do the promises of automation sit in your roadmap? Is that something that you're looking at more and more? Um, we probably, we don't do, we use automation, but it goes hand in hand with, with human um, help. We use, um, we, des we use it in probably mostly in design terms through BIM and the interface between BIM and our machines in the factory. But we're certainly not looking at robotics to to 3D print homes or anything. As that's that's a lot of coverage over. Um, houses are uh, the components of houses are reasonably simple, and um, but it's the choice of materials that will lead to that level of automation. Having said that, we do have there are some things that are well um, that are well well informed and. Uh, reliable machines so we have an automatic wall walling station that will assemble comp the components of a wall much faster than we could do or much more uh, reliable than we could do if it was purely human help so and also you must have cutting machines that are also yeah. kind of they are robots we just think of them as normal now yeah we do yeah 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 it's just finding that sweet spot in the middle i think automotive industry struggled with this as well as it can swing one way where you think that you don't need any people to be involved and just it's not always helpful so you're somewhere on the journey is that something that you look at all the time i guess is is that part of the scalability or or do you think you've kind of got that? I don't, it's not something that is. That's not something that we think is a, a big part of improving what we do. The, the the it depends where you think of it. I, I kind of to think of it very practically and physically about robots making things on the factory floor. But I think a lot of it will be about logistics and um, uh, coordination of of materials and how you can how you can get into flow, but using the benefits of technology to coordinate those. Um, those deliveries. 
What would you say to local authorities who are looking for kind of, you know, climate sensitive development in their area or beginning to have that conversation? What would you what would you say to kind of convince them uh, that this was, you know, of of the kind of work that you do and why it would be of value for them? Well, yeah, we do have a number of conversations with local authorities because given the declarations of climate emergencies, they are all, quite a lot of them are looking at this. And it is very new for local authorities because most of them haven't built houses themselves for many decades. uh, And most of them have a need to do so. Um, And and I guess looking at the similar, they'll experience similar problems that we did, which led to us setting this up. If you go into the market and you say, well, we'd want a very high performance home, the cost base will be a normal home plus um, a big percentage uplift and that will put it out of the, um, sometimes puts it off the table for for a number of people. So I think for people looking to develop this at scale, there will be a number of opportunities coming through. I think the market is going to respond to that. But it's thinking about not just the how you build it, and there's a big focus on modern methods, and people are most interested that you have a factory. But actually, it's it's what you, what you're building, and it's the it's that crossover between what you're building and how you're building it. Because if we're just building the wrong type of product in a factory, we're not going to create great places. And if we're not creating great places, we're not going to create sustainable communities. We're not going to achieve all of those other benefits around transportation around this is on the energy side but then the social benefits as well about community cohesion and addressing loneliness and all sorts of other issues by the design of, of great places so i think it, it for, there's a great opportunity and you see it with some good examples in norwich and cambridge etc where local authorities are taking a more holistic approach about looking at the what and the how and um yeah achieving great examples out of it it's how we can do that at scale so you would argue with them, it's not just about modern methods of construction. It's about what you're actually building in that in that, that end result product and actually how it, that community is going to be put together. 100%, yeah. It's not just about modern methods. That's part of the answer of how you get there. Um, but it's not everything. You've got to change your, your uh, expectation of what you want to be built before you start looking at modern methods. I think Does it's... Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's... I was just thinking it's a good time to go and have a little look around. If sure. that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. So what, where am I? Tell me where we are. So this is our factory where we make the walls and floors. So materials all come in down our right-hand side here and they're all cut to length. And all of those dimensions and coordinates are all fed from the BIM system. Once the materials are all cut to different length, they're all stacked on the trolley that you see in front of us. And the trolley then feeds them into a, uh, an automatic nailing station. So that, that big piece of kit there will, will be fed with all of the different components and it will, it will put them all into a, the, the required wall shape and size and will automatically nail all those bits together. Once they're finished on there, it comes down to this station here where the the panel's flipped over onto its side and it's insulated. So he's stuffing it full of, looks like some insulation. Yeah, this is a recycled glass insulation. So you can feel that there, it's 
quite soft. So that, that gets injected with insulation. Then the, 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 the panel's put on on the other side, the sheathing board. And the panel continues down the line. It's an external wall. These are party walls here. The membranes are then applied. So there's two membranes, there's a breather membrane and there's a, a, an airtight membrane as well. The silver one's the airtight membrane. Once they're applied, the walls then stood up into a vertical position like this. Just sneak through here. And then what happens here is that the, the windows are put into the, the wall um, on this station here. So at this point, the, the panel will be quality checked to make sure that the air tightness is all um, complete. And is that a visual check or is there like a little... No, it's a visual check at this stage. Okay. And then that will go from here and it'll be loaded onto a, uh, basically onto the back of a wagon directly from here. And taken to site? Taken to site, yeah. And then is it stored there or is it kind of, is it as, as needed? Are they made as needed on site? So if everything's working completely to flow, it should, it should be erected on site within probably a day or two of it being produced here. That requires the site team, the crane, and the factory to be working at exactly the same pace. Is that the ambition then? Yeah, it's, it's the ambition, but it, the inevitability of winter means that we've got a, a day like today where our crane can't operate because it's 30 mile an hour winds. So the crane isn't working today. So you end up with, uh, you end up with a, um, a few panels that are uh, stored here waiting for the uh, tomorrow. So in an ideal world, this is just in time construction. Yeah. Or just in time delivery, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And then these cassettes that I see with the bracing, what are they the floor cassettes? So they're all the floor cassettes. So they're, they're all, again, designed in BIM so that we can optimize the routes through. So if you look through there, there's a direct route for the mechanical ventilation uh, pipe work. So that, will, that gets pre-engineered um, uh, to know where that, that route's going to minimize the number of bends in the system. And what's your foundation that everything's landing on? Uh, so we have a uh, over there. I'll show you. There's two two different types, which you can you can just see from here. Going back to how we're getting cars out of the landscape, we build a frame, and the houses sit on top of the car park. So they're sitting on top of a of a um, a steel frame with a the concrete lid. So you didn't manage to get rid of concrete and steel in your climate innovation district entirely. Not on phase one. Uh, so phase two, which is just on your left here, this is a, a new office building which is just starting on site. So we're going to have a concrete-free foundation and floor in there. That's the first time we're trialling that, and if that works. And what is it? Uh, it's a product called Semfree, so it's a cement alternative. Um, and so that's really a, a bit of innovation. If that works, you're, would it something that you'd we'll, we'll, you would We'll replace all of the cement with that, yeah. Again, going back to what you're asking about some of the challenges, it's, it's every time you've got a piece of innovation, you've got to bring a whole load of consultants to get up to speed and get happy with that. You've got to provide the evidence base, etc. So they can be, um, uh, yeah, they, they, each one of those takes quite a bit of work. To get to just doing, using Sempre? Oh, any, any innovation really, anything that is um, not tried and tested particularly, which when you're trying to decarbonize a whole, a very carbon intensive 
product and process, there's, there can be a number of those challenges. And when you look at other um, industries, where do they have the advantage? Do they just have... a long history of innovation or do they have just less regulation? I, th I think it's being, if you, if you take, I keep referring to the automotive industry, but if you take the cycle time for a car, there'll be six, seven years in design. And we don't have that length of time in construction. So we would, we would view six to 12 months as a you know, reasonable amount of time. And it's not really, if you're going to look to innovate. <laughs> not if you're going to, if you're going to innovate. But in this case, it's not so much like you're just designing a home, you're designing a process and a product, so you can afford, in theory, to take a bit more time with it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that the way our approach to that is that we start with version one and you have uh, various improvements to version one before you get to a version two. And so we are continuously improving the product. Tell me about this lovely pedestrian footbridge that we're using. So this is um, this is something we've just installed. So it's been open now for a few months. Um, it's made of core 10 steel. Um, the 16 different types of fin that vary here to give the wave effect. Um, and actually, it, it houses the city's heat network. So it's a box section, and there's a flow and return pipe that goes under here, which will take in time um, waste heat from the city's energy plant, which is just over there, to the south bank where there's going to be demand for a lot of heat demand for new housing. It also gives the opportunity for that factory there, which is a, a glass factory. So there's a lot of waste heat from there. So you can start to plug in industry into, into a heat network. So getting a heat network across the river was one of the challenges for the, for the engineers. So will you be using that heat network for the homes or is it? Probably not because no. the timescales won't align, but oh. <laughs> um, as we were building a bridge, we've, we've facilitated that anyway. It's nice bridge. Oh, thank you. Steel is supposed to be a bit naughty. How do you balance these decisions around <laughs> concrete and steel? You just do your best or is it? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's an inevitability when you're building things that there is a carbon content. So we we do map all of our carbon and there are some things that like building a bridge that you have to choose the materials that are best suited for that purpose. So we, um, yeah, I guess we balance that with with looking at the predominant thing that we build is houses and trying to reduce the embodied carbon of a house. So tell me where we are and what we're looking at. So we're... Um, walking down the, the frontage of our phase one. So we've got, these are all uh, townhouses on our right here with the river on our left. Uh, the townhouses are all three stories, four bedroom homes. Um, and I, I guess in terms of the public landscape, we're, we're standing on a deck, which is a, a, a semi-public semi deck, but it relates most mostly to the houses that are just in front of it. And is there a street between here or is that they walk out yeah. and they're on this riverbank basically? There's a street here so emergency vehicles can get along this street here which as you can see in front of you is, is actually grassed. Yes, but is, um, so emergency vehicles only, it's not for cars so it's... Yeah, it's yeah. just for emergency just vehicles. Just for emergency yeah. vehicles. So you're basically, you come out of your, is this your front door or your back? Yeah, front door. Your front door Straight and you're on a beautiful, a beautiful riverbank. Yeah, so this is what I was talking about earlier about the... The stepped. Um, yeah, the stepped approach to 
biodiversity and the natural habitat. So at the lower level there, we've retained the existing trees and we've left that fairly untouched. And then this, this level, this is a wildflower meadow in, in a different season. And then we have a, 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 a I guess, a more formal place for amenity. And then the structured sort of planting outside the houses with what is a, a road for fire and emergency access. When you say a semi-formal place for amenity, it's like a nice wooden deck just for yeah. people who are yeah, a wooden <laughs> listening. Deck, yeah. um, and we're on kind of a meandering path and these are kind of kitchen walkouts, I guess. Yeah. So are these real humans who live here? Uh, these or? are real humans. This is actually a, a sales suite, so I can show you in here. Okay, great. Um, I'll tell you what, should we walk around the outside first yeah, and then we'll come back into that because it'll give you a better idea of the type of houses. And are these for sale now or have they already been? Uh, these are all occupied, so there's first 30 odd of these homes are occupied. And how was the take up? How was there, um, was it kind of immediate? Did you have to explain the kind of future of this place or how, how did that go? I think with anything new like this the 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 take-up with we're seeing as people can actually come down here now and experience it and understand it is uh, opens it up to a much wider part of the market whereas at the beginning we had some really we had some really uh, passionate buyers who live here and wanted to be part of what we were creating but we're now sort of widening that to people who are um, who are convinced by seeing it in the flesh yeah yeah so this is a street that sits above the car parking, so the car parking's underneath us now. And we can see it, right? We've got kind of a, a gridded pathway and we're looking down on the yeah, cars. Yeah, so part of the car parking is, is ventilated to, so we don't have to have a mechanical extract there. And then what we have here is a, a nine, nine meter street width between these um, front doors of these different houses. And again, these are all four story, three bedroom homes. They have rooftop terraces on the top so um, and family families primarily and those downsizers is that yeah real mix seeing? across them yeah and is there kind of a home working type solution here do people are, is there like a co-working is there a sense that people might be trying to work from here or have a space to work that's nearby uh, certainly some people do yeah they, they it's part of that changing working habits. Uh, quite a lot of people tend to find they're doing at least part of their week from home. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't have a we don't offer a kind of formal place for that. But more and try the gardens, to build it into the design. they don't exactly this side. They don't exactly have their own garden. They kind of back out onto that shared river bank. Yeah, well, all of these ones here have rooftop terraces. So the whole of their roof is a is a, a is dedicated a terrace. Space. And what's up there? Just like a little. So there's a, there's a there's a glass roof light that opens and um, yeah it's just it's all decked so so what you can see here is part partly built homes so these are the envelopes that have, have um, come out of the factory so they're put up our fit out squads are in there now so there's four houses there, there's a squad in each one of those and they'll be in there until they've completed those the fit out of those where's the water from uh, this is just coming off the the roof. The, oh, right. This will then get drained into the into the car park down below, but we haven't punched through the drainage yet. Okay, so they're going in there. These are our cassettes all stacked up. The windows are already in there yep. when they arrive. Yeah. And then how are they connected one floor to the other? 
the cassettes on the, the wall cassettes. Mm -hmm. So there's a male female joint that um, gets uh, it's, it's just gets screwed together on site. And it's all your are these all situ employees? Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, the, the bits that we don't do ourselves is the groundworks. We don't do the roofing and cladding package, and we don't do decoration and kitchens. So everything else is part of our team. How do you choose where to stop then? Uh, I hope we've chosen. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, 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 it's about getting flow. So it's about continuous flow and where we can add value. So where we've got operations that are integral to keeping that flow going. So if you think of the cladding and waterproofing packages, that can that's not on our critical path. So that can happen as soon as that envelope is completed. Those those teams will come in whilst we starting on the the or just before we start on the insides. So and then uh, in terms of kitchens, that's a that's not a continuous activity. That's a specialist trade, um, and we keep painting as a as again as a subcontract trade because that doesn't fit with our model of multi-skilled teams. So when you're looking at it, you think: Is it a multi-skilled team? Is it something that is repeated uh, and bespoke to us? And if it is, then you think we'll take that in-house. And if it isn't, you think we'll let someone else do it. Yeah, we've got a model that we've been we've been refining over the last uh, eighteen months, I guess, with the, the fit-out squads. And what we need to do is get that to a point where we we see this being at a world-class level before we change it. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to add any any more complexity or. Because um, in theory, you could it. be assembling your kitchens in your factory and your bathrooms and just stacking them up as well. Yeah, we could do. We could do, and we do get. We we have a quite an open policy of people suggesting things, and our team will uh, are very keen to take on more. But I think we we we've got to you got to stick to what you're good at. We've got to become the best at what we do before we expand that. So can we have a look inside? Yeah, please do. I mean, it looks very social. You've got these front doors facing each other. Is there this ambition that this is going to be a community that meets and talks to each other? I think when you design a place without fences, you do to get a different type of behavior from people. And we're certainly seeing that here, that people have commented that they've got to know their neighbors in a way that they didn't in other places they've lived just because of that, the, the design of the place. Seen your rainwater collection. Yeah. And the gardens, do you maintain your own front garden or is that maintained for you? No, it's all maintained by, uh, by the, the resident landscaper, gardener. And so, is that something you might pay into as a resident? Yeah, so the, the, all the houses are leasehold, triple nine year lease. There's no ground rent to pay, but the freehold is all owned by a community interest company. So the community interest company is collectively owned by all of the leaseholders. Yeah, they're then free to appoint whoever they, they wish to manage it. So we'll go into the show home. So three-story house. This is essentially a back-to-back. So there's a, the, the car park is behind this at ground floor level, but then the house at the back starts at first floor level. So we've got a triple height void at the back with a roof light. So that drops light into the back of the plan and allows us to get the, the bedrooms at this end of the house. What it also does is it builds in climate resilience as well. So we've got a passive cooling system here. So there's a, a secure vent there to the right hand side of the window. So in terms of cooling your house down when there's instances of overheating, you can open that and use a chimney effect to cool your house down through the vault. Because those open up there as well. They open up and do there. they open automatically? 
Uh, no, they don't. They they could do, but we don't we don't provide that level of um, technology, I suppose. Yeah. And the whole house has a mechanical ventilation with heat recovery system, which is in here, MBHR. And that abstracts air from all the wet rooms and re-injects air into all of the living spaces. And then that house is in um, a balance. So we've got the kitchen living room on that bottom floor. And here you have your river view. Yeah, so this, this would be a bedroom. We use it for virtual reality tours on the TV there. So we've set it up in a different way, but this would typically be a bedroom. And will the Situ factory stay there? It will, yes, it will. Well, it's a lovely view, isn't it? <laughs> really. Well, it's very quiet inside. Is that part of this kind of super insulated? The walls are very thick. Yeah, it's part of the, um, this triple glazing on all the windows. So when you open this. It's nice and cozy. <laughs> So they're not huge inside, but it certainly is a house. And why did you go for the back-to-back? -back? Was that to get more on the site, really? Yeah, it's that, that balance of density and placemaking and mm -hmm. how we can get the necessary density that means that we can afford to build housing in a city, which this site had planning consent for a thousand apartments. So to change that into one where you've got 300 homes, you've got to be able to create you got to bridge that gap yeah. somewhere. So, because of course, there's that feeling like, oh, the windows don't get a view at the back, but the other ones get quite a spectacular view. So it's yeah, a, it's a... and and I think the the I guess this is also playing to the topography of the site. So there's a seven meter level change from the north of the site to the south where the river is. So we've hidden the car parking in that level change mm -hmm. and then put the houses that are at the back of here one story above. So their living space is on top of here. So they're looking out south As well. and still have river views over the top. So it's a going back to the kind of um, the the component nature of what we're building, we're able we need to be free to be able to exploit those kind of design opportunities that we're doing here that may be completely different on another site. It may not need something like that. It might need a different typology altogether. So we, we feel that's how we've ended up in the, the form of manufacture that we've got to be able to exploit those opportunities. Mm. To be flexible, but then also efficient, like you said, and yeah. scalable in a, in a way that's bespoke enough. Yeah. And adaptable. Got a few, a few, a few asks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that really just leaves me to say thank you Oh, you're welcome. No, thank you for, for coming up. Super interesting day. So it was such a flying, uh, <laughs> flying visit. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray. 